This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello, and welcome to the Francis Effect podcast. My name is David Daltz. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith, and I'm an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friends, Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Heidi is executive editor and vice president of National Catholic Reporter, a publication that connects Catholics to church, faith, and the common good with independent news, analysis, and spiritual reflection. Father Dan is the director of the Center for Spirituality and professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Father Dan and Heidi, welcome to you both. Heidi, how have you been? Oh, I'm doing well. Just got back from some more work travel. Got to go to the City of Angels, Los Angeles. NCR had its board meeting there, and we also had an event for some of the uh, friends and donors of NCR. So to any listeners out there who were maybe at that event, event, thank you so much for coming. It was wonderful on the campus of Mount St. Mary's there in Los Angeles. And we also did a few Catholic touristy things while we were there as a board um, and some of a staff. So we toured the new cathedral, well, relatively new, I guess it's several years old, but it was the first time I had been inside it. Um, controversial when it was built because of its modern architecture. Uh, There were parts of it I liked, parts of it that I wouldn't have done, but it was pretty awesome. And then we also got to go have lunch and then have a a meeting with Father Greg Boyle from Homeboy Industries. And I swear I must be like the last Catholic on earth to become a huge fan of his because I had read about him and I knew he had books out there. But in preparation for our meeting, I'd been listening to his most recent book, The Whole Language, which I'm loving totally recommend to everybody. And it was so awesome to meet him and some of the people at Homeboy Industries and Homegirl Cafe. So it was a great trip and I didn't catch COVID and I'm back home. So that's exciting. (laughs) (laughs) How are you doing, Dan? I'm I'm doing all right. So the last couple of weeks since our last episode, I've actually very atypically for myself have not been on the road that much, which has been wonderful. It's nice to be here in glorious South Bend and spend some time in Chicago as well with the Friar communities there. But as soon as I say this, once this episode drops, I'll be back on the road again and we'll be on the road a lot in the coming few weeks, particularly on the weekends where there's a number of talks coming up and board meetings. I don't get to go to L.A. for any of those, but 
some warmer climates for a couple of them at least. One shout out next week, Thursday, November 17th, I'll be giving the annual Christ the King lecture up at King's University College in London, Ontario. So for those uh, listeners who are in the greater London, Ontario area, you're most welcome. And for listeners who are not either in Canada or in that area, I think there is a free live stream. So you can check my social media page out or check out King's University College if you Google it. There's information there. And then right from there, I go to a place that David and I know very well over many years, and that's AARSBL. That uh, is it magnificent. It's certainly awe-inspiring and not always in the best ways. <laughs> um, massive theology and religious studies and scripture conference. This year, it's in Denver. It's always nice. I love that city. It's great to be there. And the most important thing, in addition to being parts of academic conversations and hearing what scholarship is at the cutting edge, it's always really great to be with other people, friends, colleagues, former faculty members and mentors and former students. It'll, it should be a good time. I'm looking forward to it. David, how about you? Are you coming to AAR this year? I'm not, although strangely enough, I'm the president of an AAR adjacent organization, and it's got a it's got a huge name. It's the Society for Comparative Research in Iconic and Performative Texts, but we go by the acronym SCRIPT. And so I will be managing a couple of script sessions at AAR from a distance as the president. And so I'll be participating that way, but I won't be physically there. I'm I'm thinking that next year may be the year I start going back to conferences again, but just did not have the wherewithal to try and navigate that. It's still too close to COVID and travel is still a little, I think, dicey for right now. And particularly just looking after my family and trying to make sure that nobody gets sick. I've been well, lots of things going on. The, the main thing on my radar lately, well, two things. One, I've got a date where I'm turning in the revised peer-reviewed manuscript for my Yale book. That'll be December 15th. So I'm excited about that and taking another step towards publication. So that's delightful. But also, I have been part of the exodus trying to figure out whether or not I'm going to stay on Twitter and where I would go next. And so I have had an enjoyable, really frustrating time over the past week or so trying out a different platform called Mastodon. And too much to go into right here, but just say, I'm not a big fan of Mastodon. I am staying on Twitter for now, despite all of the weirdness that is reported to be coming down the pipeline. But I am very interested to try and find a place for my kind of social media presence. You both have remarked in episodes past, I'm a person who is very on Twitter and I use it as a real method to think with other people. And I'm really kind of lamenting the thought that I would lose that because some of my best interactions and scholarly ideas have actually come, believe it or not, from Twitter threads over the last couple of years where I've kind of developed a thought in conversation with other people and then taken it into a different writing environment and then expanded on it. But I think, Heidi, even strangely enough, one time I wrote a piece for National Catholic Reporter based on a Twitter thread, if I'm recalling correctly. Yes, yes. And for those of us that are called, I'm going to do the air quotes here, influencers, it's a, it's an important place to be because you can connect with a lot of other people, get ideas. We get story ideas, source ideas there, too. We have not had a real conversation about this at NCR yet. I highly doubt we're going to pay for blue check marks. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I was just going to say this other verified Twitter user. You know, it's one of these things where I didn't ask for it and I'm not going to pay for it. It's mysterious to me how some of this stuff happens. And it's usually, I, I don't know, actually, to be honest with you, how it all came to be. But 
I tweeted a little message about the fact that I am very much on the fence. I'm observing right now. Had this experience, and I wrote about this in NCR as well in my column around after Lent this year, that I did sign off of Twitter and Facebook, and I wasn't sure how that was going to play out. And in the end, I have found myself, there's, there have been returns on that investment, that spiritual investment, which is I, even when I think to tweet something, I get to the app or I log into the webpage and I'm like, nah, I don't feel like saying this. So people have noticed that. And I don't know if that's for better or for worse. I think I've heard a little bit back and forth, but I, I just was simply signaling kind of David, like what you were saying is that I'm, I'm keeping an eye out right now. And honestly, I don't know that I'd be terribly upset if things got so bad that I'm like, peace out, I'm out of here. And I just saw the headline on the New York Times yesterday that Meta, the parent company of Facebook, just fired uh, thousands of their employees as well. And I don't know. I mean, that's been sort of a a different pockets of Facebook has has been a dumpster fire in recent years. And so maybe I don't want to be on there either. I don't know. I'm kind of feeling a little bit romantic about like a like a, a little theologian on the prairie sort of dynamic, which is, you know, get, go out into the woods, get off social media, just get back to reality. I don't know. Well, for the last couple of years at Loyola, I've taught a class in the springtime that deals with media and ministry and theology. And that class has been stable for the last couple of years because we've had a really established set of major players in the social media field. And now I'm looking ahead to the spring because I'm going to I'm going to teach it again. And I'm thinking about I'm going to have to rearrange certain parts of this course because the landscape has suddenly changed really dramatically. And I find that fascinating. Like we've reached a kind of island of instability like it was around 2005 to 2008. It's really interesting to watch how the landscape is going to change over the next 18 months. I'm both excited and terrified to see what comes next. Well, I'll just say that I do think it is changing and we have those of us in the business of communications and needing to use social media have to pay attention to that. But I'm going to predict right here that we're not going back to the horse and buggy era. (laughs) I'm going to go out on a limb there. Certainly what I've noticed in our own social media is the area of most engagement. So maybe not the most people, but where people are really engaged is with videos on TikTok and Instagram. So we've really been growing that a lot in terms of NCR. So. Who knows? If Twitter and Facebook fade into the sunset, they're going to be replaced by something else that may be better, may be worse. We'll see. But but yeah, for now, I think at least most of us are maintaining some presence, but there's a lot of wait and see that what will happen there. I, I will say that the social media platform I have come to appreciate the most and causes the least stress and anxiety and uh, conflict is Instagram. Part of that is allowing me to tap into my now hobbyist photographer roots and share images and to look at other photographers and that sort of stuff and see what people are up to. And it's not nearly as contentious as um, as Twitter or some of these other platforms are. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Well, today on our show, we've got three topics we're going to be looking at. We're going to do an overview and recap of what we know so far of the midterm 2022 elections. We're recording this on Wednesday, the 9th of November. So we're just the day after the elections have happened and certain races still haven't been called. But we're going to be as encompassing as we can in that segment. We're also going to look at certain anti-LGBTQ plus policies that have been put in place from various dioceses around the country and discuss the impact of that on vulnerable populations of queer kids, particularly. And then to round out the show, we're going to look at two recent cases that have been considered by the Supreme Court of the United States 
and how they might impact civil rights legislation and affirmative action in America. So all that's coming up. Please stay with us. You're listening to The Francis Effect. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf, and I'm here with Dan Horan and David Dahl. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. In recent weeks, as the U.S. midterm elections were drawing closer, the media narrative about the potential outcomes began to shift. After a summer in which momentum was gaining behind the Democratic Party, especially after the overturning of Roe versus Wade and some economic measures to respond to gas prices and tame inflation, there was now talk about a possible red wave of Republican support heading into Tuesday's elections. No such wave arrived. By all measures, the dire circumstances anticipated by political observers and hoped for by Republicans failed to materialize. However, as we are recording this episode the day after the election, a number of significant races have yet to be called. As of this recording, control of both houses of Congress remain an open question. In addition to the competition for control of the House and the Senate, there were statewide races, local races, and ballot measures, including several states that secured a legal right to access abortion care through state constitutional amendments. While this is still a developing story, we at the Francis Effect podcast knew that we had to at least begin talking about this important topic. So let's get into it. We'll start with you, Dan. What are your initial thoughts in light of the known election results and those we are still awaiting? Do you have any initial predictions or analysis? (laughs) I always have analysis. Whether it's good or bad, that's up to the listener, I suppose, to determine. As for predictions, No, I'm giving up on that. But there are four things that that I've been thinking about. First is what I would call the phenomenology, the experience of this election cycle. The second is about the Congress control that's still at this time, as of this recording, up in the air. The third is the question of abortion and its legal access in this country. And the fourth is this forecasting. What does this say? It's not exactly a prediction, but is there anything that we can glean thinking about the next two years, right? Looking at the presidential run especially with Donald Trump kind of hinting through his own kind of social media channels and other ways that he may be making an announcement in the coming week, questions among the Democratic Party about whether or not President Biden should run again or make an announcement that he's not going to seek a second term and so on. But first, I'll just say I I feel really good. I don't necessarily mean about the outcomes, but maybe it's because I haven't spent as much time on Twitter as we were chatting about beforehand. But I feel like the last couple election cycles, I got so invested. I was listening to all the podcasts. I was reading all the papers. I was, you know, hanging on every poll. And then this year they brought back that needle on the New York Times. And 
in, in another manifestation, I would have lost my mind. But I, I found myself able to manage a certain kind of distance. And I don't have a formula for that or like an instruction. But I found myself yesterday evening, for example, very happy to have an event that I was facilitating on behalf of the Center for Spirituality here in the International Thomas Merton Society. We had an 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern time, regularly scheduled lecture. And then after that, it was later in the evening, I went home and I went to bed. And then when I woke up this morning, I was bracing for what the news would have. Again, because as of last evening, the anticipation was that there would be a red wave, there'd be this, that, and the other. And it was much, much more modulated. Like there was a much more sort of tempered kind of assessment. So I thought phenomenologically, like that was my experience. I mean, I'm curious about your two experiences this time around. David? Well, so like you, I taught a class last night that went well into the evening. And so by the time I was out of class, the polls had closed here in Illinois and the commentary on NPR as I was driving home was really ramping up. But I, like you, I was able to get some distance from it. And I'm very blessed that I am married to a political policy junkie. And so I was able to come home and have my wife, Kira, give me the quick and dirty about kind of what should I be worried about and what should I be happy about? Because I don't always process those things so well in the immediate moment. And I woke up this morning, uh, and you're going to laugh, but I don't know what cartoon it was from. I think it's from an old cartoon called Ren and Stimpy, but they did a mock commercial that was sort of based on the Slinky commercial called Log. And, it's big, uh, it's heavy, it's wood. Yeah, so it's, it's big, it's heavy, it's wood, and it's better than bad, it's good. And that's what I woke up humming this morning because the results of the election were better than bad. <laughs> and, and so that's about the best that I can say. They weren't, I'm not ecstatic about them, but over the last couple of election cycles, like you, Dan, I have gotten used to getting my hopes up and getting involved in trying to push things to the left as much as I can, and then waking up the next morning and realizing that the reactionary slam has pushed us more to the right. For whatever reason, this time around, that didn't happen. And so I'm at least rejoicing that we're not seeing things substantially worse than they were 24 hours ago. They're not substantially better, and we don't quite know how things are going to play out with the House and the Senate yet. We're still waiting to hear but I'm more optimistic because of how not bad it was, if that makes sense. If anyone ever doubted, any listener doubted why Dave and I are friends and have been friends for so long, let that Ren and Stippy illusion <laughs> secure that for you. Well, let me just say that I'm really grateful that both of you are taking care of your mental health and not getting too crazy over the elections. But news junkie over here, I was like monitoring it like crazy. <laughs> And I, I mean, I'll tell this brief story about this morning. I literally I had to get up early this morning to edit. The, we had a column from Michael Sean Winters that he filed at like 2.30 in the morning. So I got up at 6 a.m. to edit it. And I literally rolled over to my husband and I said, Fetterman won. <laughs> and he was like, good morning. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, that's what it's like to live with me. So I was we did take a little break and watched uh Oh, we're watching the Magpie Murders, which is great on PBS. But I was pretty much following it last night. I wonder if some of this whole the sky is falling narrative, I mean, it was based on po some polling, but I wondered all along if it wasn't part of the Democratic get out the vote strategy that everyone was so terrified that it would be terrible because most of the narrative on CNN last night was like, hmm, nothing new so far. And then by the end of the night, they were giddy that it hadn't been as bad as they thought it would be. But as you both said, 
there's still a lot up in the air here, and we may be looking at runoffs that could extend things. Maybe the whole having to wait longer for results is giving everybody like a little bit of space where the reactions are not so immediate. I had a question I wanted to ask both of you. So because I'm very on Twitter, as I mentioned in the last segment, I see a lot of progressive voices and a lot of kind of lefty voices. And some of these, both centrist Democrats and leftist Democrats, were talking about a kind of blue wave or a blue tsunami coming through. But as I was listening to all of the national reporting on this, I didn't hear anything about that at all. Instead, what I heard about was a kind of red wave. And I'm wondering what your experience of the media framing of this has been, because I was very surprised by that. They didn't even entertain the possibility that things like Roe v. Wade or other sorts of aspects like the physical attacks on various Democratic lawmakers would have an effect at all on the polls. Well, I think they did. The The tone had changed by mid-fall, right? So coming out of the Dobbs decision this summer and with President Biden's initiatives to, to sort of stem the rise of inflation and address some of, insofar as a single politician or president can respond to some of the gas price issues around the economy, I think there was this narrative going into the fall was that there was a democratic sort of momentum. I think, honestly, David, my sense was, because I was perplexed by this too, I, my sense was that the Republican Party has been very good at controlling the media narrative and not just in their own sort of megaphone channels like Fox News and even the more alt-right places. By that, I mean, even the sort of mainstream traditional press was hopping onto this sort of talking point bandwagon around the kind of what I would consider to be the desperate retread sort of hot button issues that Republicans are known for. So rising crime, whether it's real or perceived, again, culture war issues. In fact, in Michigan, as the polling was suggesting and has proven to be true, that the, the by and far, the citizens of Michigan were not in favor of abandoning banning abortion in the state. One of the things in a more desperate plea in the mailings, the electronic mailings that were going out and the text messages that were going out from certain Republican campaigns were patent lies about if you don't do this, then, you know, like the children after they're born who are eight years old, like all kinds of insane things that, that were being presented. And so I think for some reason, there is this sort of hypnotic kind of captivation that the media has in just taking the Republican talking points at face value and assuming, I think, a kind of general stupidity of the populace that they're just going to go with that. Now, certainly some people are swayed by these things and for whatever reason are legitimately concerned about some of these issues, even ones that are red herrings that are just opportunistic. But that's my sense is that I think there's not enough critical distance sometimes. And part of that is that, again, this is old news, the 24-hour news cycle where talking heads have to talk for 24 hours. And so they're happy to take, well, here's an angle. I mean, Heidi, you're the real pro among us. What do you think about that? Well, of course, everybody getting along is not a news story. So conflict is a news value. And so it's not just some sort of sinister, you know, it's about clicks or something sort of decision. It's about whether it's really news. So I, I it, to be fair, I think it's sometimes overdone and overamplified. And on both sides, there was a lot of fear motivating both sides in terms of, you know, what I, I didn't read these things about the, some of the abortion uh, referenda, but I would say people on the left were concerned about the fate of our democracy, that's for sure, and there was some fear there. I guess 
what I noticed was that, like, it's a good news story in that a number of sane people showed up and voted and not every election denier won. But that said, we're really no diff- in no different place than we were three days ago or a month ago, which is we're a very divided populace. We're a very divided church. And election deniers can get on the ballot and many of them do win. So it's still things to be concerned about, I think, no matter if it wasn't as bad or good as some people thought it might be. Well, and I want to amplify that because part of what I have been watching over the last six weeks or so have been cells of Catholic integralists, people who are really trying to think about ways to use right wing power to disenfranchise populations that they consider to be unworthy of being part of our society. And so even though they are still fringe elements, there are voices out there that are sort of under the Catholic banner that are saying things like, listen, if we don't do well in this election and push things to the right, then we're just going to have to shut down the courts and shut down the state houses and shut down everything else and basically force our opinion out there. And what really concerns me is that they're not exactly being dissuaded by the bishops from taking this position. And in fact, some bishops are giving them cover. So. For listeners out there, I just want to say, if you're not aware that your co-religionists are taking some of these positions, begin to put your ear to the ground and see if there's stuff like this going on in your diocese or even in your parish and speak up about it, because this is a major problem. And I am often accused of being a kind of alarmist well before these things happen. But I was also talking five years ago that we need to be worried about the Nazis as well. And here we are. So so one of the other things, just to, to come back to some of these themes that, you know, have been on my mind and I'm sure yours and our listeners as well is, I mean, thoughts about right now we have Schrodinger's Congress, right? Because it can go either way. We won't know until until the last election is called or at least a few more. It looks very likely that the Senate may end up being numerically in the same situation it was before this election with the vice president of the United States breaking ties. That would be from the Democratic side of things, the best case scenario. But there's a runoff in Georgia as of this recording. Arizona and Nevada have not been called yet as of this recording. And so those may shift the equation altogether. But as things are being predicted at this point, that seems the likeliest course. A lot of this talk has been that around this red wave that the Republicans would take back the House, take control of the House, and by a significant amount of seats, that significant amount portion has not come to fruition, that they're looking at maybe a handful of seats if they flip red would be sufficient. And actually, most of those, as I understand it from the analysis, are turning because of redistricting. This is not actually contested previously existing districts and congressional seats, but a reallocation of those representatives per state. I'll just put my card on the table. I've come to peace with the fact that we might have a split bicameral situation here. I think that would be the least worst situation. I think that if you have President Biden as basically the captain of vetoing with a Republican takeover of the Senate and the House, that bodes very poorly, especially because with regard to the Senate, that's where these judicial appointments are and in cabinet level appointments are approved. And so one can see, and the playbook has been presented already by people like Mitch McConnell, of this kind of absolute obstructionism. So I'm curious, do you two have thoughts about what the fate of the Congress is and the two houses? I guess I had also come to terms with the very strong chance that the Republicans would take the House. My concern there is the the 
propensity or the likelihood that they'll try to shut down the January 6th investigation, which I think is very important. And like you said, the Senate, we're not going to know for a while. I think that it's, I don't know if it's confirmed the runoff in Georgia, and I think that's going to postpone and again, be very close. So it'll be interesting how Georgia has become this, this signifier for the whole country. I'm grateful that some important pieces of legislation got through in the first two years under Biden. So some of the infrastructure stuff, because if the House is Republican, he's probably not going to get a whole lot done in the next two years. And so we'll have ineffective government again. But I guess maybe we're getting used to that. Well, and this is a piece that my mutual friend of many of us, Stephen Millies from the Bernadine Center over at Catholic Theological Union, he and I go around and around about our optimism about the democratic process. And he's much more optimistic than I am. But I think that you've put your finger on it, Heidi. One of the problems that we have is whether or not we think that governance is actually something that the government should do or whether the government should simply be in the bombing brown people business and otherwise staying out of doing anything at all. And that's a fundamental philosophical difference between our friends on the left and our friends on the right. And I I think until and this is what I'm really kind of cribbing from Steve Millies here is that until we actually deal with that fundamental problem, that there is not a common narrative about how government and our polity should be here in this country, we're going to have a kind of stalemate. And so I don't know how we rehabilitate that other than by trying to invite again and again people to the table of the democratic process. But uh, my fear, and this is something I express now to Steve, but also to you and to our listeners, my fear is that there are those who are increasingly committed to just shutting that process down entirely. And that's the end game that I fear the most. Well, another positive from yesterday, though, was very limited, almost non-existent violence. And there was a lot of concern about violence. Now, Obviously, races still have to be called and there could be things that happen going forward. I'm somewhat encouraged by some of the data about young voters. So there's thing data coming out, certainly the very young, lean Democratic. They showed up in some slightly bigger numbers than might have been expected. That said, they still don't vote in enough numbers to really be affecting the kind of change that I'd like to see. But I'm hopeful because it's better than thinking that the same people are at the other end of the age spectrum and the people coming up are worrisome. So I don't know what you guys are seeing about young voters, but I'm somewhat encouraged by some of the early data coming out about that. Yeah, my experience has been that like institutional affiliation with religious organizations, I think young voters, people the age of my students, for instance, and their younger siblings, they're very skeptical about this, you know, kind of the debate that you, David and Steve have about Is this a functioning process? Is this an institution, meaning the federal and local governments? Is this something that actually can get anything done? Or is there, you know, I think part of their well-earned and understandable impatience, given everything, given the state of the world and climate change and the rest, might be counterintuitive in that regard that they actually don't go out to vote. But let's maybe just switch gears because I know we're running out of time in this segment and there's so much that we're going to be keeping an eye on in the coming weeks. But the last thing that was very newsworthy were the number of referenda and ballot measures for constitutional amendments at the state level, as well as other legislation around legal access to abortion care. And maybe surprising, maybe not surprising, all of the states so far that have considered that have, regardless of whether they're red states or so-called blue states or swing states, have followed Kansas's suit. 
So we had a number of these, Vermont, Michigan, Montana, California. They all had ballot measures that pertain to abortion care access as a right in the state. Kentucky had a bit of an inverse sort of a ballot measure that in negative terms, there would be, I guess the proposal was that, that there'd be an amendment that says there is no right to abortion or any requirement to fund abortion in the state constitution. And that was rejected by a significant margin, in fact. So uh, what are your thoughts about this? I mean, I think a lot of people were looking to this. I know I certainly was with that special election in Kansas. Was this a one-off? Was this an exceptional thing? Or was this representative of something larger? What do you think about it? Well, there are a lot of critiques to be made of polling <laughs> and what, how accurate it is or how helpful it is, especially since polls don't really seem to be reaching certain demographics of people, including younger people. But it does seem that polls that show that a majority of Americans, including Christians and Catholics, preferred where abortion was legal, even if they personally were opposed to it or wanted some restrictions to it. So I guess I'm not as surprised about some of these referenda coming up the way they did, although Michigan does surprise me, but because it is happening in even in states that are perceived to be more red. But yeah, I mean, I think it's a complicated question for a lot of voters. One analysis I saw talked about a lot was the split ticket where people were voting in some races, maybe governor one way and senator another way. And I think that this issue was important for a certain number of voters. And so for many people, maybe it was a break with their party kind of thing, too. Yeah, I mean, the split ticket thing, certainly Michigan's a great example of that. So is Kentucky, because Kentucky, if you look at especially the state level races in both of those states, they remain disproportionately Republican, even if Gretchen Whitmer and some of the statewide bigger profile races like governor in that case went to the Democratic Party. But right now, with about 95 percent of the votes tallied in Michigan, there's a 13 percent gap in favor of approving that reproductive freedom referendum in, in the state. So just crunching the numbers, you don't have to be a mathematician or a statistician to realize that split, split ticket reality is very real and that a lot of folks who are members of the Republican Party, a lot of folks who, as you said, Heidi, are identifying some religious tradition in a place like Michigan, you have a lot of Muslim and a lot of Christian large populations there. And so this is something I think we need to keep an eye on. I think it's something I'd be curious about some of our friends in the pro-life movement, I say pro because it has been by and large an anti-abortion movement in, in the United States and the Catholic community for many years, at least the loudest voices. And I think there's something to be considered here. The other thing that I'd raise is like, this is exactly, you know, you got to be careful what you wish for. And I'm thinking here of Samuel Alito and the majority of the court that, that overturned Roe versus Wade. They turned it back to the states. And as we see in these red states, in states like Kentucky, where the Senate minority leader's own home state has been very clear, even with their crazy wording of trying to invert this to confuse, I assume it's to confuse the electorate, they will not be fooled on an issue like this. David, do you have any thoughts about this? Well, the thing that I really want to lift out to our listeners is this gap that you pointed out, Heidi, the Catholic Church and Christians more broadly are in one place on paper with regard to these issues, and they're in a very different place when boots are on the ground and people are in the polls voting. And that disjunction between where we say that we have to be and where the population of both Catholics and Christians more generally are showing up to be, that to me is really the thing to, to be thinking about. I mean, so uh, when I teach about these issues in the classroom, I think about it in two passes. I will 
begin my conversation by saying, here is the official Catholic position on abortion. And we will talk about that. And then I will bring out the statistics, just as you just did, and say, and here is where Catholics actually are on abortion when the rubber meets the road. And so that, to me, is really the question to be thinking about for thoughtful people of faith across the spectrum, because what we're saying and what we're doing are in very different places right now. And that center can't hold, I don't think. I mean, we've been trying to pretend that it's not that way. But what does it mean if we actually look at state after state with significant Catholic voters showing up and helping to secure this as some kind of right or or access? What does that mean moving forward? And I'm not a political scientist, so I don't exactly know, but I'm very curious kind of where particularly the leadership of the church might go from here. Well, in a couple of days, I'll be getting on a plane and heading to Baltimore for the U.S. bishops meeting next week. And I know that looking at pro-life initiatives after the Dobbs decision is on their agenda. So we will find out more next week about how they plan to move forward on this issue. Well, maybe we will circle back after that meeting and do a wrap up of that as well. But for right now, thank you for staying with us through this extended segment. There's so much to talk about. It's very important, but we're going to move on now to other topics. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Father Dan Haran and Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Earlier this week, the Denver Post obtained and released a document from the Archdiocese of Denver that provides Catholic schools with guidance for how to handle LGBTQ issues. The 17-page document, titled Guidance for Issues Concerning the Human Person and Sexual Identity, warns that, quote, the spread of gender ideology presents a danger to the faith of Christians, unquote. It also says Catholic schools should not enroll transgender or gender nonconforming students, should not allow students to use pronouns, quote, at odds with the student's biological sex, unquote, and should not promote acceptance and approval of LGBTQ identities. Teachers who decide to transition are, quote, not suited to teach in a Catholic school, unquote as the document said. While urging, quote, charity and prudence, unquote, the document says that students struggling with their sexual identity can enroll or be re-enrolled at a Denver Catholic school only if the parents and child agree to, quote, work towards an integrated sexual identity aligned with bodily reality, unquote, and agree not to come out on social media. The Post reported that the document was shared with school administrators several years ago and distributed again earlier this year. The Archdiocese's guidance contradicts that from the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Post article reports, noting that homophobia can lead to depression, substance abuse, and increased risk for suicide and other mental health disorders among LGBTQ youth. The Denver Archdiocese's document is one of a growing number of diocesan policies on gender identity and sexual orientation, as a recent NCR in-depth report by staff writer Katie Collins Scott found. Her report looked at recent policies released by the Diocese of Green Bay, Wisconsin, Lafayette, Louisiana, Memphis, Tennessee, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and the Archdiocese of Omaha, Nebraska. 
Scott reported that while many Catholic high schools are working hard to support students, critics found these new policies to be particularly harsh. Said one teacher, quote, they are not creating schools of encounter. They help create a culture of fear, unquote. Heidi, National Catholic Reporter has been following this story. How does the news about the Denver document fit into this broader trend? Well, I'm afraid that this is just going to be something that we're going to be continuing to see. So we had that report several weeks ago about a number of dioceses that were have releasing similar documents or working on them. And now this Denver one, which apparently has been around for a couple of years, but was not released publicly, but because it was reshared at the beginning of this school year, it was released to the media. So it would be one thing if this was just a disagreement about something small, but this is a life and death issue for LGBTQ and trans kids especially. So I hear every day about Catholic schools where this is not the case, where there is an open and welcoming atmosphere for LGBTQ students. But increasingly, I think once they put these policies on paper, then there is always the threat, at least, of ramifications if a school is not acting in accordance with them. Now, I heard someone say, and I can't recall who it was, but they were saying for that conservatives in the culture wars, especially among religious folk, that trans people are kind of the new gay marriage, right? So they lost that topic (laughs) for the most part and kind of just moved on. Of course, abortion is the perennial issue that always will be part of the culture wars, I think. So I think it's particularly important to pay attention to this. And what's lurking in the background is that What they really want is more of a national or even sort of global from the Vatican policy about these issues. So in the absence of that, they're moving towards these local diocesan policies popping up in these dioceses. And I think we're just going to keep seeing more and more of it. And that's one thing that I just want to clarify. It's my understanding that at this point, there is no Vatican or other kind of global policy on transgender persons. And if I'm incorrect about that, please correct me. Well, the Dicastery for Education a few years back released a sort of guidance document as well. In many ways, it's similar to the one that the Archdiocese of Denver was circulating. More about this document in a moment, but there are similar threads but, you know, that, that come through all of these. And I need to say that that document from the Dicastery for Education is not magisterial teaching. Those are guidelines for Catholic educational institutions to adopt or not as they see fit. It was provided as a resource. But I wrote a column about this, I think it was four years ago or so when it came out, and I pointed out a number of things. I'm not the only one to have done this, but to highlight with that document, there was all this talk about a population of people and no consultation with that population. And so this is always a big red flag. There's no respect for the census fidelium in that regard. There's no respect for the people that are being discussed. That's a major problem. So that's the first among many. To this draft document circulated by the Archdiocese of Denver, I mean, it's striking who the co-authors are. And these are two theologians and a lawyer who work for a project known as the Person and Identity Project as part of the right-wing think tank Ethics and Public Policy Center. And if you scroll through their fellows or their staff members, you'll recognize a kind of who's who gallery of right-wing self-identified Catholic folks. You know, probably the most well-known among that group is George Weigel, right? So some of these people, like these three co-authors, are legitimate scholars. They have academic credentials, but their agenda is not one of objective scholarly inquiry. They have an agenda that they're promoting. 
And you see that very early with this many page document from the archdiocese that, or at least that was provided by these co-authors to the diocese that they were circulating. Whereas the very first subject is terminology and they quote, you know, what the professional societies, the American Psychological Association and medical associations, the terms that they use, these are the standard, the real terms. And then they propose, and I'll quote here from the document itself, quote, by contrast, the following terminology should be used by school leaders and faculty in our Catholic schools. And so there's a conflation now at this point between sex and gender. There are all sorts of problems and mistakes that are intentionally added to this. I'll say that this is not the only right-wing think tank that has dabbled in this. The Catholic Bioethics Center based in Philadelphia, which was a project sponsored by the former Archbishop of Philadelphia, Charles Chaput, who we talked about in the last episode. That's another group that portends to be a sort of an objective academic institution, but they are like the person in Identity Project out with a very particular agenda. And that particular organization has been hammering the anti-transgender sort of agenda for several years now, going back to at least 2014 to 2016, when they were engaging, representatives from their group were engaging with ethicists and theologians and medical um, experts through the Catholic Health Association and other institutions. They were really pushing this line. And so in many ways, I see this as the next stage in an ongoing effort, as Heidi just said, to go after yet another, and in this case, extremely vulnerable population in our community. It's disgusting, it's sinful, it's wrong. I will just say the point that you made, Dan, about talking about rather than encountering with, there have been a couple reports about Pope Francis meeting with groups of transgender folks in the Vatican. And so I think that's encouraging and in fitting with his move towards the synodality of listening to people and hearing what people have to say. Now he's not change church teaching in one iota or come out in any sort of lefty progressive way about the issue, but he's at least talking to people and, he, and listening to them. Longtime listeners will know that I come back to this again and again, but I'm thinking about Pope Francis's remarks to the United Nations when he basically said that our job as people in the church is to support the vulnerable and the poor in becoming agents of their own dignity. And one of the things that I think is really a way forward there is when we think about the extremity to which particularly transgender persons, but also other gay and lesbian persons and people along that spectrum of different types of identities, the way in which they are oftentimes shoved out of their homes, shoved out of the ability to hold jobs or secure housing, all of those things make them vulnerable and make them poor. There's an intersectionality there that I think we can really begin to talk about. If we are going to be fully Christian, then we have to look at the people, as Matthew 25 reminds us, that would be pushed aside or unwanted by society. Matthew 25 talks about the prisoners, the sick, you know, the widows, the orphans, the strangers. Well, we can include that now into our modern day widows, orphans, and strangers, those that are, that are refused admission into the basic parts of civil society because of who they are. Well, that's where we need to come in, as Pope Francis tells us, to support these people in becoming agents of their own dignity. That doesn't mean that we tell the story for them. That means that we support them in telling their own story about how their life should be. And so there's a real kind of place there for us to speak out loudly. If we're here on the progressive side of Catholicism, the left side of Catholicism, I don't know how you call what we're doing. But for me, it's the gospel side of Catholicism where we're actually saying, listen, this is what Jesus commanded us to do and stop excluding people and stop making gatekeeping your job. Your job is to bind up the broken and to, and to gather the lost. That's what we're here for. 
preach it, David. There, way to go. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't agree more. And this is where sometimes find myself at loss for words because I feel like I've said everything that needs to be said for myself on the subject. And we've talked about this and related issues over and over again. And David, to your point, I mean, it's to me as plain as day that if we use that old 19th century reappropriated in the 20th century as a, a bracelet slogan, what would Jesus do? Jesus would have none of this. I mean, it, to me, it just is so scandalous that you would have folks who identify and are using Christianity and the Catholic Church. And again, like with politicians, the sacraments, people being denied access to the sacraments, people being denied inclusion at the table, people being denied the right to enroll in a private school. I mean, all of this is deeply scandalizing and and people should be ashamed, frankly. So I don't know what else there is to say. Maybe there's nothing more to say other than we need to keep pointing that out. Yeah. And as I said, I think we're going to continue to see more and more of these policies. So we will definitely keep following that here and reporting and commenting, even if we have to repeat ourselves here at The Francis Effect. So look for more coverage of this in the future. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and David Dahl. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. The U.S. Supreme Court is once again poised to set back the clock on civil rights in a set of cases being heard in late October and early November. The first case combines two suits brought by an organization known as Students for Fair Admissions, and it's brought against the University of North Carolina, a public university, and the private university, Harvard College. In these combined cases, the attorneys who represent students for fair admissions are asking the court to overrule precedent set in a case called Grutter versus Bollinger. If Grutter is overruled, this would effectively eliminate affirmative action as a factor in admissions at both public and private universities. A second case, Bracking versus Holland, is being argued before the Supreme Court on the day we are taping this very episode. In this case, attorneys for the plaintiffs are seeking to have the court reconsider key portions of the Indian Child Welfare Act, also known as ICWA. Though, on its face, the Brackeen case deals with the adoption of Native American children by white parents, the judgment of the court will have far-reaching effects on the relationship between U.S. law and Native tribal laws moving forward. David, listeners know, as I do, that you pay a lot of attention to the Supreme Court, or as I like to call it, the lesser SCOTUS. You asked us to look at these two cases together today. What are some of the connections you are seeing here, and what should we and the listeners be watching out for as these decisions are handed down? Well, I think there's a historical context to consider that runs through all of these cases. And that common thread is an historical and ongoing assumption by the United States government that whiteness should be the preferred or default environment in which to conduct the education and identity formation of children and young people. And the real question is that these cases present to us existentially is whether or not non-white parents and communities have the right to challenge and seek alternatives to that assumption. So in this particular case, one of the things that is sort of so heartbreaking about the case with the Indian Child Welfare Act is 
we're talking about a long history of removing children from their families, placing them with white families and eliminating their ability to have contact with their heritage and with their people. Now, when we look at the United Nations Charter of Human Rights, this kind of activity is literally defined as genocide against people. We have made strides to ensure that the United States no longer continues this practice with things like ICWA. But now instead, we're seeing the possibility that those rights and those guarantees of protection are going to be removed. And commentators that I've been listening to are now asking the question, once we begin to chip away at that bulwark of this particular fundamental right of tribes to raise children in their traditions, are there going to be other things that have been carved out for native tribes that will begin? Will this be a wedge issue that will start to pull them away? And so on a similar tack, we can look at affirmative action at both public and private institutions. It doesn't exist in a vacuum. Oftentimes, commentators on the right will act as if it does. It exists instead in a long history of creating these spaces, both in public institutions and private institutions, as spaces of white access and spaces of white identity. And anyone who comes into that as a non-white person is seen and identified visibly as an outsider. And affirmative action has really tried to reconfigure these spaces into spaces where it is no longer white hegemony that is the defining factor of these spaces. And now what we're seeing is the possibility that a return to a kind of quote-unquote race-blind approach will simply allow these spaces to become de facto white spaces again. So I really want to call this what it is, even if the court won't name it as it is. And it really is, for me, a question of whether or not the parents of non-white children and non-white young people can challenge the hegemony of all white spaces. And for me, that's really what we're talking about here. I appreciate that perspective, David. I will just point out that sometimes the parents of non-white children are white, as in the case of our family, where obviously the adoption case has some personal resonance for me because my husband and I have two adopted children who are not white. Now, they're not Native children, and maybe some people will find my perspective surprising, but as a white parent of non-white children, I agree with the Native people. I know that this case is really about Native law and how it might be extrapolated then to take away other rights from tribal law and how it might take away other rights from Native people. But when you're talking about adoption, of course, the first possibility should be to place children with their biological family, first of all, is the first place that you try to place a child who cannot be parented by their own biological parents. And then secondly, within their own culture. And the adoptions that we did internationally, at least ostensibly, and we tried to make sure this was actually happening on the ground, tried to do that first before they turned to the West for adoption. Now, there's a lot of controversy about whether that's really the case. The thing that's so crazy about the case that's coming before the Supreme Court in that one is that the white parents got to adopt the child from the Native child, and yet they still went ahead with this case because it's clearly about something else and something bigger. And the fact that the that it looks like affirmative action is going to be overturned at a time when it couldn't be clearer that racism is such a huge issue in our country just says more about how we're still clearly struggling with this issue with some people just wanting to deny that it's even a problem. I can't even believe that we would be considering taking away affirmative action. 
Well, three quick items on that. One, first of all, as I was prepping for this segment, you and your family, Heidi, were actually very much on my mind. And I have a couple of other friends and close colleagues who are in similar situations where it's a multicultural adoptive situation. And so I'm very aware of the complexities that are involved here. And I appreciate you bringing your perspective. And I hope that you'll continue to bring the complexity into this conversation. The second piece is I want to, I want to make sure listeners are aware that one of the questions that is at hand in the Supreme Court case with the ICWA overturning is the question of whether or not those white parents have standing because of exactly what you said. They got what they wanted. So do they really have a complaint to bring? And then the kind of final piece that I want to say, and this ties into some things that we've been saying in earlier segments. So when we look at the ways in which the amicus briefs, the friends of the court that, that have weighed in on this, really stack up, on the side of those who are in favor of, of keeping tribal sovereignty and tribal protections for the raising of children, on that side, there are organizations like the American Academy of Pediatrics and other sorts of organizations that have studied this and say it is really better for children in the long run if they have connections with their culture of origin. On the other side, and this is similar to things that we talked about in earlier segments, we see very right-wing organizations that do not have any kind of credential or really any kind of history for being concerned about child welfare suddenly stepping in and trying to push the needle on this. Yes, and some in the for-profit adoption industry as well supporting it. So, I mean, I think any good adoptive parent is very aware of, especially if they're adopting cross-racially or cross-culturally, is very aware of these sensitive issues and very cautious about building their family that way. And certainly there's been a lot to learn even in the 12 years since we built our family that way. But a lot of education around race was required of us before we adopted, and we have been continuing to do that. Being colorblind is exactly what you're not supposed to do. <laughs> and I think that's applicable for both of these cases as well with the Supreme Court. I, I haven't been following the adoption case as closely as the arguments that have been heard in the UNC and Harvard case. In fact, I listened to some of the questioning from the justices of the respective attorneys. And it is very disappointing to me because I think one of the things that that is absent and I think needs to be intentionally absent or at least was in the precedent that's being considered right now, that goes back to Sandra O'Day O'Connor about 23 years ago when this question was challenged back then, I guess that was what, in the early 2000s, was that they're treating this as if, as people like Jim Wallace have described it, as if racism, I suppose by extension with the adoption case, native genocide aren't the original sins of this country, that there is, in fact, something distinctive and that is deeply persistent in the inequality and the injustice that exists on account of race. I mean, certainly, you know, injustice and inequality exists on account of sex and gender. We know that as well. But there is something more insidious, I would say, about this, particularly in our legal system. And so the fact that even Sandra Day O'Connor, who herself speculated based on nothing other than her own sort of amusement, I suppose, that 25 years from that decision, which I think was in 2003, so ostensibly 2028, we would no longer need affirmative action because things would be, everything would be fine. I don't know what planet the late justice was writing her decision from, but to your point, Heidi, case in point, look around the world and look around our country, look around our communities today, and we realize that we're struggling to just get most people, most white people in this country to acknowledge that there is this history of racism and that it continues today. So I think it's interesting how some of the parsing has been played out in the oral arguments, including 
this idea that this is not to make up. In, in other words, affirmative action is not reparations. I have my own issues with that because I don't know that that should be something disqualified, but fine, we can take that as what it is. I know that the primary, the precedential argument has to do with reflections of society as they actually are and that our educational environments should more accurately reflect the kind of demographic situation in which people find themselves and in the communities in which these educational institutions exist. To me, though, I think there's a third thing that isn't adequately considered. I think it comes through implicitly in some of the questioning from, I would say, the court's minority right now, with the exception of Clarence Thomas, those like Latinas and Justice Brown, folks who are justices of color, again, exempting (laughs) Clarence Thomas by his own admission from this. I, I think the thing that needs to be considered is this distinctive characteristic that it's not a matter of, I I appreciate the distinction that's been made, this distinction between reparations or something that has been done in the past. But I think what needs to be considered now is those lanes, those avenues, those resources, those opportunities for access that are, because of racism, prohibited or made more difficult for other students who have just as much aptitude, just as much intelligence, just as much capability and so to me, that, that's the most compelling argument and the biggest reason why affirmative action needs to be upheld. So listeners, we're going to put some links in the show notes so you can follow these cases yourself and become more informed about them. But one thing that I really want to point out is that these issues that we've been talking about throughout our show today, they're not distinct issues isolated from one another, but there are connections and interconnections that tie them together around the care for the vulnerable and the way in which we as Catholics think about arranging our lives together with those that are like us and also those that are unlike us. So I would invite you to both be in prayer, but also to put your feet on the ground and get in action to really help and support the vulnerable in your community. Between now and the next two weeks, I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of other things for us to be gathering and talking about. And I'm really looking forward to being back with you, Father Dan and Heidi, in two weeks. But for right now, we're going to bring the show to a close here. You've been listening to The Francis Effect. Thank you very much for being with us. Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.